Welcome to Crude Conversations. Before I talk about this week's guest, I wanted to give everyone a heads up. I recently started a new podcast called Lost Anchorage, where I investigate the mechanisms and causation of crime in Anchorage, Alaska. And in order to keep that going, I'll need to make more time to do all the things that make up a podcast. All that to say, for now, there will be a new Crude Conversations episode every other week. And same with Lost Anchorage. I'll still be releasing one podcast a week, but one week will be an episode of Crude Conversations, and the following week will be Lost Anchorage. All right, let's get into my conversation with this week's guest, Jason Borgstead. I've known Jason for as long as I can remember. He was there during the Borderline Alaska snow and skate years. If you're not familiar with Borderline, it was a snowboard and skateboard shop in the late 80s, 90s, and 2000s that really nurtured and pushed that culture in Alaska. My dad, Scott Liska, and his brother, my uncle Jay Liska, started it. So Jason was a big part of that scene. He went on to become a professional snowboarder. He filmed for heavy hitter snowboard videos like MacDog and even won the X Games. Okay, the Crude Company men. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, Sharon Liska, and the newest company man, my dad, Scott Liska. My dad has been a guest and the subject of this podcast on more than one episode for being instrumental in the exposure and progress of the Alaska snow and skate scene. Thank you, Dad, for always being so supportive, as well as an inspiration to me and pretty much everyone else who's ever encountered you. Keep killing it, Dad. Honestly, I think that's your only setting. And thank you to everyone else for your support. This podcast would not be possible without you. As I always mention on here, because it's important to the continuation of this podcast, if you enjoy this podcast, consider giving it a review on iTunes and subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. Okay, back to Jason Borgstead. So back in the 90s and early 2000s, Jason, along with Jesse Bertner, would film and edit the annual Borderline Snowboard and Skateboard videos. They went by J.B. Deuce, and those video premieres were monumental. If you had the opportunity to go back then, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It brought the whole snow and skate community together, which, 20-some-odd years later, has become the driving force behind his own snow and skate shop here in Anchorage, Blue and Gold Board Shop. As he mentions in our conversation, with Blue and Gold, he's trying to recapture that feeling of belonging and community he experienced back in the day and give it to present and future generations. So here he is, Jason Borgstead. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! You hear me? I mean, yeah, I can hear you. Hear me pretty good? Mm-hmm. Like you're creeping over the back of my neck. Whispering <laughs> in my ear. Tickling the back of your ear? Yeah. All right, Borg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So how have you been? I've been excellent. I am a father now for one year and about three or four days. And so that's been... Uh, it's just been awesome, uh, mainly because my wife's really cool with him, and he's such a happy little dude. Like they so, get along? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, they get along. Uh, no, she's just really dove deep into just being the best mom possible, more attentive of him, making sure he's developing, 
uh, all of those things. You know, she takes them to the museum constantly and uh, to the park and everything to stimulate learning and thinking and give him the attention that uh, I can't always give because I've got to be running the shop. And then she makes sure that she brings him to the shop uh, just about every day to spend an hour there and be around me. And so I'm not just dad that shows up in the morning and the evening, you know. Is there something that you've learned about being a father that you had no idea before? Well, I learned that I, if it's your kid, it's not a big deal to wipe shit. (laughs) (laughs) I really was like, babe, I do not want to touch a diaper. Seriously, for real, I'll do whatever else. I don't want to touch a diaper. And I changed his first diaper and have happily changed a lot of them since. Uh, You know, it's, it's your kid and you just look at them different when they come out. Um, the funny thing that I can say is everything has taken on different meaning. You know, you, you see a movie plot where the dad's kid gets taken in there. This situation is crazy. And you're like, of course I can see how that guy would feel like that. But once you instantly, as soon as you have a kid, it's completely way more in those shoes. You feel completely way more connected to that situation. And, uh, so now Yeah, I get a little more teary-eyed at commercials and stuff. So having a kid has made certain movies better. I guess so. (laughs) I don't get to see as many movies now, uh, but yeah. (laughs) So for the people who may have been familiar with you in the past as a videographer, a filmmaker, a professional snowboarder, a lot has happened since then. You're married. You have a kid, like we just said. Um, you own a snowboard and skateboard shop called Blue and Gold. Is that whole trajectory a little wild for you when you step back and take a look at it? I guess you could look at a lot of things and say that it's wild. When I look back on my life, it seems uh, it seems very non-standard. But while you're in the middle of it, it seems normal. Uh, for some reason, right from... Soon as I could play any sport, I instantly wanted to be a professional at that sport. You know, I wanted to be a baseball player forever. And uh, then I started skating and snowboarding. And I think it was pretty apparent I wasn't going to be a pro skater right off the bat. But uh, instantly, (laughs) as soon as snowboarding caught on and I could see that I was fairly proficient at it, I was like, that's it. I'm going to do that now. And uh, then that happened. And When that ended, I figured out how to play poker for a living. And then uh, I didn't know what else I was going to do after that. I just didn't know. I I just knew I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I had started planning years before what I would do if I had a shop. You know, I mean, a lot of that stems from how important the shop was to me and my development or what I credit as a huge uh, factor in my development as a human being and as a getting to live out my dreams. So I thought, okay, I'm going to start going towards this other goal. It just seemed like no dream was too big. I feel like I grew up in that Rocky era where no matter how hard it was, you could persevere. You could take enough punches and you could come out yelling Adrian. And, you know, you could make that, you could climb to the top of that hill. Mm -hmm. You know, they... I just somehow seem to not feel like anything was unreachable. So it doesn't seem that crazy that it happened, but only because I believe that if you try hard enough, you can be involved in whatever you want. Maybe I can't play 
basketball in the NBA, but if I tried hard enough, I could figure out how to be a part of that world. So it doesn't seem that crazy. I, I was just blessed to be passionate about something. And it was baseball at first, and then it was uh, skateboarding, and then it was snowboarding, and then it was poker, and then it was a shop. And a lot of kids I see never find a passion, and they just kind of twiddle their thumbs, and and that's tough. I mean, how do you – you can't force somebody to really latch on to something and go for it. But luckily, I was able to have those things, and somewhere along the lines, it's the parents, the people around me said the right things to make me believe I could do whatever I wanted. And uh, so I just knew with hard work, you could do it. You know, you mentioned that's a product of the era that you came up in. Do you think that that era is, is long gone or does it still exist? Well, I, uh, it's a tricky question. You know, sometimes on these podcasts or an interview, you feel like you have to put a side note about everything you say. So just know that if I say some stuff, there might be more behind it that I don't want to <laughs> make a four-hour answer for like I just did. But I think that most of it's gone, but that's life. We have to evolve. So what I'm trying to do is take those beautiful things that I cling so dearly to uh, and figure out how to implement them in a current day culture. So I, I don't feel like it's hopeless to have the things that I want from that time delivered to other people, but I do think that it's tough and it's an uphill battle. I like that response. I think that it's really easy to get caught up in nostalgia and wanting things to be how they used to be because um, you know when you're a part of it, you don't realize all the time how hard it is for it to exist, if that makes any sense. So if you're a part of the culture, somebody is out there driving that culture and you are just experiencing kind of like the byproduct of their hard work. Well, in our time, all of us were driving it. You know, you, you were, uh, I mean, you, you could have as much of a role in it as you wanted. And I chose to get balls deep in it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm not a sit on the sidelines kind of person. Um, so I wanted to, uh, snowboarding seemed fun. So I wanted to do it. And then I wanted to do it around other people. And then my natural, uh, upbringing was competitive sports, you know, team sports are competitive. So I was competitive and wanted to be around others, but that was also a meeting place for it. And then as I'm doing that, snowboarding's being created as we know it. And, borderlines popping up and uh, cultivating that and helping it sprout and giving me this place. It wasn't just borderline. So borderline was huge. I, I don't want to downplay that significance of that, but there were all these players in it that helped make it a big deal. You know, uh, Rick Malone and Perry Solomonson were these two guys that really pushed the USASA up here. And that was a group that I could go and compete in. And then Scott and Jay would oftentimes show up to those events too. You know, they were sponsoring them and stuff. So they were there and we could all meet all the other people that all snowboarded. And that was a much smaller community at the time. So everybody got together and went, oh, that's cool. We're going to be around other people that like what we like. Let's go for it. And then as you do that, you can decide whether you want to be a part of it more or less. And I just wanted the more. Do you see blue and gold as 
pushing the culture here now? Uh, so I guess it depends on how you look at it. Yes, but I'm not pushing the culture the same way. So back when Borderline first sprouted, it was a very, uh, if you want to use the term rebel sport, both of them were skating and snowboarding were very unaccepted by the mainstream. So you were, you were developing the culture and it was a counterculture. So that's a little bit different. You were driving this and being young and angsty and all that, it's easy to drive something that's counterculture because you can throw your middle finger up, you can color your hair, you can tell grandma to F off because she's in your skate spot or whatever, <laughs> you know. You can do all these things and that's considered part of driving it. Well, the thing that I do now is, so business, retail has changed tremendously and that stuff's not going to fly anymore. You know, back in the time when when borderline first opened, you could basically open the doors and money would just fly in. And then you could decide how you wanted to deal with that and, and how you wanted to manage it. Uh, but now you really have to fight to even be considered somebody's retail decision. You know, there's, it, it's all in the consumer's hands and you're just basically begging like, Hey, please let me be a part of your experience. And, some people choose to do a, you know, handle that great. And some people, we try to handle that in a very grateful way. Mm -hmm. You know, we say thank you. But to get back to what you're, what you're asking is we're not driving the culture in the way that the, the culture's totally changed. It's completely um, open to anybody now. It's not, uh, it's not about being exclusive. It's about being inclusive. You know, you want people to be a part of it now. It's no... You wanted people to be a part of it back then, but nobody wanted to be a part of it. So you were like, well, fuck you guys then. We're going to circle the wagons and be about each other and, and F you to everybody else. Mm -hmm. But now everybody and their grandma either is part of the culture or wants to dip their toes in it. You know, everybody wants to look like something that's from skate or snowboard or surf fashion uh, or that lifestyle or something. So... Now what I do is I look at it like, let's take it back to what skateboarding originally was. When I first started skateboarding, nobody liked skaters. People would yell skater fag or, you know, they would want to fight you because you associated with skateboarding and, and, and all this uphill battle just to be, to call yourself this thing that nobody else liked. Mm -hmm. And um, so you you would roll up on this group of skaters who knew that nobody liked them. And then there, here comes this dude who's lonely uh, by himself and he rolls up on the group and they're like, oh, you do want to, you like what we do. You want to be a part of this. Cool. Well, we need more people like you. Let's, let's welcome you in. Mm -hmm. you're, you're probably an outcast. You're an artist or a different thinker, or you don't fit in with this or that A, B, and C. So we want you here and we welcome you in. That was the original thing that I didn't, I wasn't good at it. I sucked at skating for a long time. Uh, I mean, still do, you could argue. But, uh, <laughs> but they didn't care. Those kids behind the movie theater in Eagle River didn't care. They were just like, you're into it, you're in. Cool. Just don't be a dickhead. So now that's what we try to do. That's the real root of what skateboarding and snowboarding were about. They weren't about, I'm fucking core, screw you guys. 
It wasn't about judging other kids. It was about the opposite of that. It was about, hey, you're into it, you're in, you're in the club. So now we do that. And so for that reason, I feel like I am pushing the original culture of skateboarding. It is no longer counterculture, but the foundation that made me want to be a part of it is what I'm trying to push now. I, I want everybody who even wants to think about it to come in, have a good experience, and hopefully find this thing that drew me and so many other people into being lifelong ride-or-die uh, fans of riding a board, whether mm -hmm. snowboard, skateboard, surfboard, whatever it is, you know? I mean, you, if you see somebody who's 30-plus years old and they're doing a job like like what I'm doing, they're mm -hmm. working in a shop or they're working at a magazine or they're at super, you know, whatever they're doing that's in that world, that person has traded a standard lifestyle and security of a standard lifestyle. They've given it all up just to be a part of riding sideways and that, that culture and lifestyle. Now you can argue you don't drink enough PBRs and you don't flip enough people off while you're doing Smith grinds. And so you're not core, but what's core as shit is dedicating your life to being a part of this thing that can make so many people happy. Mm -hmm. You know, we get, uh, occasionally, uh, there's people who are like, Oh, you're just not core enough. And I'm like, well, fuck you because you were born in a time where everybody <laughs> loves what you do. Yeah. So how core is that? How core is it to do the thing that everybody loves to do and loves you for doing? That's about to be that, in the Olympics. Right. That's not core. What's core is your reason for doing it. It's not whether you wear a shirt that everybody wears that day or not. It's your reason whether you're a nonconformist or not. You know, mm -hmm. nonconformity is doing it because you want to purely not because something else is dictating that you do it. And that's what we're trying to push, you know? You want to say, or anybody who wants to say that what we're trying to push is not core doesn't get it because they weren't around in that time frame. They weren't around when people didn't like them for doing that activity. They were born in a time where everybody praised them and said, you're awesome because you do that activity, you know? You know, what's it, what's it like going off of, you know, core? Because I think core has... Um... I agree. I think that that it's definitely transitioned into something different now. But what's it like when you get somebody who is maybe mid-20s, uh, even younger, and they come in trying to preach about how not core what you're doing is when they were babies, you know, when you had the original, quote, core, unquote. That's what, yeah, that's exactly what I was just saying is like these you know, like, and we've had a couple, but most of them will never say it to your face. They'll preach from their uh, Instagram pulpit, uh, and then when they're awfully tight-lipped when they see you in person, you know, <laughs> they're like, which actually isn't very core, is it? <laughs> no, it's about as uncore. And then they tell you how uncore you are, so they're going to go shop at the mall, you know. But meanwhile. I'm doing everything I can to put on events, to give away. I, you know, I don't need to get into preaching about what I do at the shop. But but what's important is if you want to talk um, some negative stuff, then come with a solution. Otherwise, you're just background noise. You're not contributing to anything. You're just complaining because you don't have what it takes inside you 
to make anything better. You know, nobody's going to, um, no, nobody needs to hear your noise if you're not going to come with a solution. I'm all open to being criticized if, uh, if it can help better the overall. But if all you want to do is say, you're lame, you're whack, and that's, that's your total argument, cool. I know I'm whack. I mean, I've been whack from day one. You know? <laughs> like a cool argument, you know, we already get that. But, but if you want to say like, you're whack because you do this and this affects the community, uh, then cool, we can have a real discussion. You know, but nobody wants to say the few people who've been really openly negative, they just do it on social media, then they don't say anything to you in person, and they never come with a solution. They don't want to discuss it if you want to have a, a, a dialogue with them. Those are the people that are, they're feeding off of what what's happening. They're not contributing to it, mm -hmm. you know? It's funny you mention, uh, uh, you know, what's whack and what's core. Because coming from Alaska, there's always this mindset that you have to prove yourself on a national or global scale in order to be relevant. Jesse Bertner once told me that no other Alaskan snowboarder has ever accomplished what you did in one year as a pro. In that year, uh, you filmed two video parts, one The King of the Hill, which is probably arguably, arguably one of the most core events in snowboarding, and then went on to win the X Games. I didn't win the King of the Hill. I won a day of it and and, and got second in the race. But it was day. But what was day close. was it? Yeah, I was close. I won the freestyle day. Okay. Uh, got second in the race day and then had a little blowout in the extreme day. But but I, I, I appreciate that. Um, so what was that day like from your – or what was that year like from your perspective? I mean, my whole goal from the beginning of snowboarding was to be the best snowboarder I could be. So that meant – I'm going to snowboard on everything that I can, um, if it's a rail, a half pipe, a border cross, or whatever, and I'm just going to keep pushing. And that was part of what made me happy in snowboarding was getting better. And uh, so I'm just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And yeah, it felt great to to succeed in situations, but it just felt like another year. You're just uh, busy. Yeah, you just go for it. There's no like, uh, how did I put this the other day? There, there's no like, t there's no talk about this or that. It's just do. And there's different types of people in the world. And that's fine. It's totally fine. There's, you can be a doer or you can be a talk about her or whatever you want to do. But for me, I'm a doer. So I'm going to, you know, like I have a lot of things to do at the shop to try to progress that thing and move it forward. I'm not going to get out there and talk about it with everybody and make a big deal about this or that. If that doesn't contribute to making the stuff happen, mm -hmm. then we're not going to worry about it because that's just a waste of time. You know, I, I think maybe to clarify here, there was buildup to get to that point. You know, you had to learn those tricks. You had to learn how to snowboard. You had to meet the right people in order to get the sponsors. And then you had to, you know, get the plane ticket to go down to the place to do the thing. And so there, there's a process. But once you're in it, I see what you're saying is you just keep going, you keep doing, and then you keep progressing. But are you saying that you just keep doing even during the journey? And then once you've kind of reached the destination, you just continue to keep doing so it just felt normal to me when, when I was doing it. 
you you gradually work up to things. You know, if you look mm -hmm. at uh, some dude who can do 1080 triple cork, this, that, or the other, uh, you wonder what it's like to be them. But that's going from zero to 60 that you're wondering about. That guy doesn't wonder about it. He just feels like that's where he's gotten to. He's, and, and I never tried to look at myself as anything above anything else. I just looked at myself like, hey, dude, this is fun. Let's just keep going. Let's progress and then be a normal human being. I wasn't, uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't look back and go like, wow, look how sick I am and everything I did. And, um, you know, everybody, Hey, take turns patting me on the back or let me throw out my shoulder patting myself on the back. You know, I mean, you just, you just, you know, Jay and those guys helped instill in me that you didn't, you just be humble, let your riding do the talking. And there was always something else to do. So you plan out a season, you show up an event, you go home, you ride some pow, you try to learn a trick, you go to the next event, then you get to film, then you try something else. We were just always busy. So there was no time to sit back and, and try to uh, look at it as anything other than normal. And the guys who did, um, well, I think they were more focused on what you get from those accomplishments rather than just being the best snowboarder they can be or the best skater or the best videographer and just know? treating that as its own accomplishment. Yeah, I mean we're just we're just trying to all find something that we love to do. And if you can find that, then fucking be the pig that rolls around in that mud. You <laughs> yeah. know? Just roll around in it and just enjoy the mud all over you. Just, you know, just enjoy getting to do that. Don't I I guess I'm trying to figure out where if I gave a different answer that was crazy what would that sound like from you you know like what could i say there that i'm not saying now you know like what what would i say like oh well i thought i was the shit so i basically uh <laughs> just basically was waiting for limos to show up and stuff like that and where's my big contract and all that i, I wasn't i wasn't thinking about any of that i wasn't i was uh, like counting my blessings um that anybody cared to ask for an autograph mm -hmm. uh I was super grateful that I was amongst these people that were my heroes a year before and I was winning an event next to them. Uh, I was, um, you know, you're just trying to keep up with this train that's going and you're trying to enjoy the ride. You know, all these things that were I was getting to experience were pipe dreams three years before that. And so I was just, um, I was just enjoying it. I was just happy to be there. Uh, I was trying to be cool about it, trying to not be too much of a little nerd and mm -hmm. be like, oh my God, this is cool. You know, but when you get to stand next to Jamie Lynn and Peter Line on a podium and you just watched, you studied their video parts at the beginning of the year to learn how to do tricks, it's pretty cool. You know, and all I thought was, this is cool. I'm going to keep pushing. Perfect. <laughs> we're gonna get into story time here in just a second you you texted me i texted you about uh wanting to know some some stories back in the day just so you can kind of jog your memory and i have i have that list right here on my phone but before that maybe maybe set the scene a little bit like what was it like being a pro snowboarder in the 90s well the cool thing about snowboarding back then was like we said it was all being invented as we went along 
Uh, now it, it appears, and I don't, I don't want to, um, to take away from what's going on in snowboarding now, but right now it seems like what we're doing is we're just adding uh, a little bit more to the same types of things, but people weren't getting sideways when I first started. Um, it was basically like, cool, a backflip and a 360 was what was going down when I started. And, uh, it, you know, like people were working on grabbing on different parts of your board. And then all of a sudden you started getting off axis and you, people were inventing these tricks, you know, and, um, just, trying to figuring out learning to ride switch and things like that. And that's what I first came into was seeing that. So, uh, and there were only a few media was different. Media was yearly videos and yearly videos means, um, you need a budget, you need people to ride in them. Those riders became heroes. They came, became like, uh, up on the, on the pedestal for us. And so I got to grow up with heroes and icons in it. And I aspired to be that. And, um, and then I started to chip away at getting closer and closer to that. And when I eventually started to break into it, uh, it was originally trying to keep my jaw off the floor of who I was getting to stand next to, uh, to the point of finally feeling like I belonged here. But Overall, the thing I can say about getting to be a pro snowboarder in the 90s was uh, you weren't necessarily disposable at that time. Uh, media makes people disposable now. You know, if you mm -hmm. it, you could have the greatest 10 video parts in a row right now. And if you didn't do anything the next year, most people wouldn't even notice you were gone because there's 50 other kids lined up to take your spot. Back then, there weren't as many. It was proportionate to how many were doing the activity, but not as many amazing people. So you, you got to stand out, you got to help create the sport, you know, you, you got to help invent tricks, you got to watch others invent them right next to you. And more than anything, you got to do what you were most passionate about in this world. Somebody gave you a ticket to go do that. Somebody said, what, what do you love more than anything in this world? And I said, snowboarding, they're like, cool, here's some money, go do it. And what, I mean, what can you ask for better than that in the world? Mm -hmm. There's really not much. Okay. Story time. <laughs> okay. Do, do you have, uh, do you have any specific story that's kind of sticking out or I got this list right here? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I remember some, I don't remember the list, but you know, like it was a, it was a more aggressive time. There wasn't the social media, so... Um, Which is probably for the best. I mean, can you imagine if there were cell phones with cameras back then? Yeah. There were more uh, risque things that happened. There were more confrontations. There were more fights. There, were, uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened in a lot of situations and... Um, being balls deep in borderline and, and pro snowboarding and all of that put me at the epicenter of, of stuff that was happening around our scene constantly. You know, making videos for eight years, you're in the middle of it. You're in the streets with the kids. Uh, you're on the hill with people. You're in the editing room. You're, you're in all these different scenarios constantly. So you're in the thick of it. And I don't know. I gave you a list. You can tell me what you're interested in hearing about. <laughs> I think I'm just going to start. I don't know if it's 
uh, you know, number one is the craziest. Number five no, is like... I the, just started throwing things Okay, out, okay. So. so I'll just start off with number one. Valdez Teen Center Dance Car Chase. Okay, so I've had guns pulled on me a few times in my life, and um, this was one of them. Uh, <laughs> so, so it all starts with the king of the hill. So first time, I, I don't know, I don't recall if this was the first or the second time I did King of the Hill. First time I did King of the Hill was uh, 94, 93, 94. Um, first year that it was there. It was so spring of 94. Okay. Uh, I was 19 years old. I had never been to Valdez, never ridden that kind of stuff. I had ridden like Alieska and that was about it. And um so I had no business being on those mountains, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't that rider yet. And, uh, but I was around the shop all the time and Scott was helping run it. And so he's like, yeah, you should do it. And, uh, so I was like, cool. And this is my dad, right? Yeah. Okay. I was like, cool, I'll go do it. And, uh, um, so I went down there to do it. I wasn't old enough to see the bands that were playing, you know, uh, so, uh, so there was a local band. We all stayed at the Totem Inn. There was a local band playing, uh, but I wasn't old enough to be in there in the area. So uh, Bertner and Pete Iverson and I think Cliff Snyder and uh, a few other people were all down from Anchorage. They were like three years younger than I was at the time. So they came down and they stayed at a different hotel and they were just going up in the pass and shredding during the day. Well, one evening we heard, uh, we were into dancing at that time and uh, I I think most of us were pretty straight-ish or straight-edge-ish at the time. I don't think there was a lot of drinking or any of that stuff going on, really. We heard there was a teen center, Valdez Teen Center dance, and we're like, sick, let's hit it up. (laughs) (laughs) So we go to the dance, and um, I try to make it somewhat succinct. Uh, Basically, when out-of-towners come to the dance... Uh, you walk into dance, guys on one side, girls on the other. They're kind of afraid to dance with each other. Then outsiders come in. Well, first of all, to the girls, the outsiders are new and fresh and look cool. So we hopped in there. We're dancing. They're like, whoa, these guys are cool. They're dancing. They're, our guys are just sitting on the wall. Uh, so they're dancing with us. Dudes didn't like that. So I think, how does this go? Girl says, hey, you should come by our place afterwards. Uh, you know, my family's house, everybody's going to come over there. Cool. Maybe, you know, we can meet some girls or something. We go over to the girl's place and, um, the guys showed up in a minivan. Uh, we get told to leave the guys, uh, this is where it's a little shaky since it was. So the guys told you to leave? Yeah. So like they showed up separately, I think. This is where it's a little shaky, but the the main points are crystal clear. (laughs) So I'm I'm not sure exactly when in the interaction it happened, but basically they were like, no, you can't come in the house. Guys in their minivan pulled open the minivan door, racked a shotgun, and we were like, oh shit. (laughs) So we're back in the car. We're leaving. They decide to follow us there. So chase ensues around Valdez. uh, Short chase? Short chase, sort of. (laughs) So um, luckily, Cliff let Pete Iverson drive, which Pete was known as quite the driver in his time. So Pete hops in there. He's mashing the Subaru Justy, which ought to hit a 
a solid 35 miles an hour before it starts shaking. And uh, so Subaru Justy, if you're not aware of that, think like a smart car, but slightly bigger. You know, it's uh, barely, very, very small. So three of us in the back seat, one in each of the front seats. Chase ensues, whip around Valdez for a bit, get to a, we drive into a dead end, <laughs> a, like, like a cul-de-sac kind of, but a, not a, not a one for houses. It was like towards the waterfront and they try to block us in. Luckily Pete evades them, gets out. We pull up to the totem in, uh, where Richie Fowler and all the, the big guys were at. And, uh, those guys all hop out of the car instantly and somehow shut the door behind them. I'm in the middle of the back seat. I can't get out in time. Those guys pull up right behind us in their minivan of death. And so I slam the locks down on the doors and I duck down in the back seat. And uh, those guys come up, inspect the car, see me in there, start banging on the windows like, come out, come out. And uh, we're going to beat your ass and all this stuff. Luckily, those other guys went in and got the bigger dudes and got them to come outside and then those kids all scattered and took off uh and then we were we were uh we were okay after that but yeah shotguns uh pointed at us car chase all of that over uh trying to take the local girls do you think that 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 situation maybe not as extreme as that one was with with a gun involved but was that type of uh just kind of like raw shenanigans was that pretty emblematic of that that time period yeah it happened all the time uh especially like i said we were identified as skateboarders and skateboarders were looked at as lame weird whatever everybody clicked up as their group you had jocks you had skaters you had um i don't know metalheads or whatever you want to say you know like there were stoners Mm -hmm. uh you had different groups and typically they didn't mesh well together. So, uh, and I hung out with all those dudes and at 19, I was like the oldest one, uh, and the biggest one. And I wasn't particularly big, but I was bigger than the rest. You know, you got Bertner and those guys and they're like three years younger and Pete Iverson probably still weighs 120 pounds. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so, uh, it, it got into stuff and I wasn't good at shying away from that stuff. So, you know, like you might have Taco Bell on your list. Yeah, it looks like a Taco Bell car chase. Yeah, Jocko Bell. So <laughs> that was almost a similar situation. I'm I'm with like um, uh, Jason Wilson and Shayna Wilson and uh, I think Pete Iverson and maybe Bertner and Cliff again. You know, basically like a group of really small, frail skater kids. And then uh, me at probably like, I don't know, like 150 being like the big kid, you know, and hockey dudes come in into the Taco Bell, which is now like a sushi place right over there on Diamond. Mm -hmm. And out of nowhere, they start flicking pennies at us. And I'm like, what are you doing? And it was like, what are you doing? Was calling their mom uh, the worst thing you could say, you know? Because they're like, what? What'd you say? You want to fucking fight? And, uh, and we're like, what are you talking about? We're trying to eat. You know, like, what? we just don't want you flicking pennies at us, you know? And then uh, that's probably not how I address the situation, but it 
fairly close. I might have been Gee, a little. Gee, guys. <laughs> yeah. It, it may not have been very leave it to beaverish, but it wasn't. I mean, we didn't do anything to antagonize it. We were just our group, but they knew what we were and they didn't like it. And so they were going to pick on it. So they leave after, uh, I think the Taco Bell people were like, hey, none of that in here, you know? So they go outside and leave. We think they leave. We're ready to leave. Turns out they had backed their cars up to the back wall and gotten ready to go. We all hop in this Suburban and lo and behold, three cars light up their lights uh, and start and follow us right out of there. So we're like, oh crap, these guys are following us. We get onto the Seward Highway. We take a few different exits back and forth. It's like three cars chasing us. Pete somehow ditches one where Wait, he looks- Wait, Pete's driving again? Yeah, Pete's driving. <laughs> yeah. Pete's, Pete's good at driving. Yeah, shout out to so, Pete. Yeah, shout out to Pete. Uh, too fast, too furious. <laughs> Hashtag no fire. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so- Pete ditches one by like looking like he's going to get off. They had one in front of us, one behind us, and uh, one on the side of us. And he looks like he's going to exit. And the one goes, starts going off the exit and he pulls back on. He gets rid of one there. <laughs> then he starts pulling up into the hillside area where they know every, every nook and cranny. He ditches another, but we can't lose this last one. So again, we find ourselves eventually stuck in a cul-de-sac, but this time a, a, another one. And so this time... We stop at the back of the cul-de-sac facing back, leaving the cul-de-sac. And there's only one car left, right? Right. One car left. (laughs) They uh, they are looking at us. They get out of the car and the guy has a baseball bat and he starts coming out. And Pete's like, fuck this, hits the gas, goes just barely around the other car. And this guy slams the uh, Suburban with his bat. And then, but then they can't catch up to us after we get out of there. So we escape you know, so a little bit of damage to the car, but that was pretty regular occurrence for Anchorage at that time. You you weren't worried about the meth and the heroin heads. You were worried about jocks trying to beat you up because you skated. To have to deal with that every day um, seems like kind of forced coreness. You know, it's like that you became a product of that environment. You know, by the time I was in school, the jocks liked the skaters. They thought it was cool. They they loved the the borderline premieres. They were like, you know, because they were this big spectacle and they were just like everybody that was a part of them and in the video were local celebrities, you know. So, I never really experienced that, but I always heard about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it was real. <laughs> that's 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 the difference when somebody says, you know, like uh, somebody says you're not core and you just laugh cuz you're like, dude, You don't even know what that word means. Mm -hmm. You don't know what it means because you don't have adversity in that activity. Now, please don't get me wrong. Like the one thing we all have in common is everybody has an uphill battle with difficult things that they face in life. And we don't, we often judge before knowing what those things are, you know, and I guess that's kind of the goal of being a better human being is trying not to be that way. But to judge somebody say you're not core or whatever, when you don't know what they've gone through to call themselves to identify with this thing is ridiculous. It's when you've had it easy as far as it goes, as far as that's concerned, mm-hmm. you know, maybe your life wasn't easy. Maybe you couldn't afford to escape. I don't know, whatever, but um, 
But a lot of us that are more on the older age, like me, grew up in a time where you had to fight through things just to get a chance to do what you wanted to do. Yeah. What about, (laughs) (laughs) um, I I think I'm just going to drop straight into this one really quick. Chopper shitting in the Zoomies dressing room. Yeah. So Chopper was this kid who hung around Borderline and um, he has passed away and he had a couple of brothers and they're just awesome people. And um, uh, Chopper got his name because mm-hmm. uh, he the way he talked when he was really little, he came in and he would say like, I want to get a Burton Chopper. So, so we were like, hey, Chopper, every time he come in and we just started calling him that, you know. Um, and he continued to stay with snowboarding. He went to borderline camps. He's just an awesome dude. Yeah, and, I remember Chopper. He yeah, was awesome. Yeah. And he was down for the cause. And so when borderline was in the mall and Zoomies moved into the mall, basically he was showing his allegiance to it. And he went into the Zoomies dressing room. Dropped a deuce, <laughs> left his calling card there, and um, <laughs> and uh, and and came back and told everybody about it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, there's not much more to the story than that. It was just like I always had a, like a few questions. Yeah, uh, one of which was seems to me the obvious question, which is. Did he do it in there or did he bring it in there? No, he did it in there. He went in there, dropped trowel, no wipey leave, and uh, took off. You know, he took took one for the team, took a deuce for the team. Or he left one for the team. Yeah, he left one for the team, but he, he went no wipey uh, and just, you know, manned up and went for it. And I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not advocating that. We didn't tell him to do it. He came back. Like, that was a of his own free will. And he was just so proud to tell everybody (laughs) how hard he put on for his team. You know, (laughs) Chopper goes hard in the dressing room and forever, you know, he'll be a legend for that. Um, I mean, if he wasn't a great dude, you know, we wouldn't really care about the story, but, um, you know, people had a different allegiance to things back then. And so, um, yeah, they went they went hard for the team. You know, you talk about different allegiance, and I one thing that I, that I've noticed, uh, and I've mentioned it before on the podcast, is I I get uh, pretty frequently. I mean, more frequently than you would think. People come up to me, and you know, they'll they'll say how much borderline meant to them, and have I ever thought about starting a shop, or have I ever start or thought about doing a snowboard camp? You know, they miss all that stuff. And and my immediate reaction in my head, I, I have to kind of like mute it um, because now that I'm older, I, I understand that there's different uh, extenuating circumstances that make you shop elsewhere. But if you're thinking about all of those things, you know, the snowboard camp, the indoor skate park, you're thinking about all these things that a local shop like Blue and Gold can do for a community, people need to support it. And if people aren't supporting it, then those things go away. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
the one thing I don't want to get is real preachy about it because just, I mean, basically people aren't interested in hearing preaching about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, let's see, how do we put it? Um, maybe an easy way to put it, because I, I completely agree is, um, I always try to think about like what I personally support, right? Like what do I want to continue to exist, right? Like, so I subscribe to, um, certain podcasts. There's things that I, I believe in and I support, you know, monetarily. Yeah. I, for me, it boils down to principles. And the other thing is education. So the difference is we grew up in a different time. When you asked me earlier, is it the same? Is it, can it be the same? Is it gone forever? Well, the idea that people are learning how to skate and snowboard in a time where retail is 100% different than it was means that they're never going to have that same experience when it comes to this. They're growing up with the internet to buy from, their phone to shop on, things like that. Um, and they're being indoctrinated with the idea of convenience over anything else. But what's never really being talked about is the repercussions of convenience. So, so many people shop at Amazon. Well, if Amazon continues to, I mean, nobody really looks into the ill effects Amazon has. Nobody looks into the ill effects that Walmart has on a community. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at Amazon, they basically bring people in and give them an awful deal, or they say, we're going to make the same product until it puts them out of business. And then part of the business plan is let's lose money for a while until that company goes out of business. Then we can produce that product and make have the monopoly on it. Because they can and, afford it. And because that, that's part of their plan, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're interested in convenience more than you're interested in anything else. But you're not being educated on the ills of that thing. And I didn't even know them all. Just like, so I moved back up here um, and I got a job waiting tables. Well, I didn't understand until that point how important tipping was. I just didn't get it. Nobody told me like, hey, when these people get tipped, they pay, they have to pay out all these other people from their tips based on how much they sell in a night, not based on how much they get for tips. So I didn't understand that. And I thought, oh, okay, well, if I don't like this portion of it, then I shouldn't tip. Well, that wasn't their fault. And so now that person, by not giving them a tip or a low tip, they got to pay all this money to all these, the bartender, the, the person that's delivering the food, all this stuff, their buster and all that, when they didn't even make anything. Mm -hmm. So they're losing money by waiting on you. Even if they never did a bad job, it was poorly cooked meat or something, you know? So same thing, uh, until I moved into owning a business and some other local business people shared with me like, hey, do you understand how far reaching a dollar spent is here? It, you know, like, because I'm going to pay local people to print my stuff, to produce this sticker or this thing. Uh, I'm going to spend my money at this store and I'm going to buy a car from this dealership and I'm going to buy a house from this real estate agent and, and just on and on and on. Right. Well, all these people that they're, those are their friends and family that work those jobs. So when I spend the money at those businesses, then that money eventually that they spent with me makes its way right back into their friends and family's pocket. Mm -hmm. When you buy everything on the Amazon, 
the Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the Facebook. Uh, when you buy everything on the Amazon, um, that money leaves and it doesn't come back. And yes, it was convenient that you didn't have to get out of your house uh, or, or get out of your car or whatever. But now your friends and family will be less likely to be able to keep their jobs and their situations afloat because of that. And and like, I'm not trying to get preachy here. I'm not saying you have to buy stuff because I don't look at it like we deserve your money because we're here. What I look at it is like, hey, I want I, all I want is a chance to give you a great experience and show you the value in a local store. And if I can do that, then hopefully I earn your business. You know, I'm not going with an entitled thing. All I'm asking for is people to understand the bigger picture and then give me a chance. Please give me a chance. And Anchorage is a great town for that. It's still, it really is the biggest little city in the world, you know, and it really does want to at least give people a chance to support local. So I, I feel like this is one of the few places that a local shop could spring up out of nowhere and survive. And for us, it's because we base everything on, please let me earn your business. You and I grew up with Borderline around. Mm -hmm. We saw, we, we, were, we were indoctrinated with value in a local store. We saw value in it. We felt it. We didn't go there and go, what do you have? That's not what I want. I'm going somewhere else. We went, what do you have? Okay, I'm going to pick from that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how we thought. That's how I thought, you know. Cool, I'm happy with what's here. This is my connection to the outside world. That's where I'm going. And so all, all I'm trying to do is say like, hey, give us a chance to do that. Even if, if that's not the world you grew up in, it's different now. Uh, you don't see the value in that. Just give me a chance to show you the value in a local store. Mm -hmm. Let me put on events for your kids to go to. Let me, you know, like I... I put in a lot of hours in trying to get free product and get giveaway stuff and make stuff to give to kids at skate contests that cost them nothing to enter, mm -hmm. you know, because I want to get people excited about skating and snowboarding. You know, I'm not selling anything there. Yes. Hopefully a byproduct is you like what we're doing and you say, Hey, I see the value in this. So when I do want a pair of shoes, I'm not going to go to the mall. I'm going to go see what you have and try to help your business keep going mm -hmm. because these other fucking places don't do anything for people. Yeah. They don't do, they, they leech and they suck off of the culture that we create. You know, and I say we create because I was there 30 years ago doing this stuff, you know, like building a video following and all these things in this town and contributing to the culture, trying to do things to make kids that ride a board more happy and more stoked to do it. Mm -hmm. Where these other stores, they don't contribute shit. They take the money. They do pay the local uh, employees but they churn and burn them. They don't invest in those people. They give a shit less. It's numbers or you're out. And then they take that money that comes in. They don't spend it on local advertising. They don't spend it on local anything. They don't spend it on local events. They don't do shit. Mm -hmm. uh, they just take the money and run. So how do you educate somebody about that? How do you, how do you 
talk to somebody who is... You go on the crude cast. Yeah. I <laughs> I, that's the fine line because people really don't want to be faced with the reality of something that might not be what they want to do. So in other words, they don't want to be preached at. Mm-hmm. You know, like I like this because it's because it's this. So don't get in my face about why I should do something else. So we quietly just try to get a chance to show you. We put on events constantly. We do premieres. We try to get kids sponsored. We we try to get involved in the skate park situation. Everything we can to try to to promote and leave our scene better than we found it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that's what we try to do. And hopefully, you like the experience when you come in the store. And hopefully, you um, see the value in that and say like, hey, if I spend a dollar here, we're more likely to get a skate park than if I spend a dollar over there. Mm-hmm. That's the, just the the end of it. Is you spend a dollar with me, you're going to get contests. You're going to try to get skate parks. Uh, you're going to get speakers. You're going to get giveaways. You're going to get uh, movie premieres. You're going to get all that. You spend a dollar somewhere else, you're going to get a nice bag. And that's what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I asked the crude Instagram followers what they would ask you if given the chance. And I think I got some pretty good questions out of it. I can't wait to hear the ones when we're done that we can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you get Jason to go kill himself? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, one was uh, one that I didn't even write down. I I, I forget the person's name. uh, But since we were just talking about corporations uh, that sell snow and skate gear, uh, this one kid was like, do you fuck with zoomies? <laughs> and, and I think that that was a pretty, uh, he, he, he knows what the answer question? is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> uh, no, I don't, you know, and here, let me, let me state one thing for the record. The kids that work in the store, the other store, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with them. They're just trying to have a job and continue to be around this thing. That's cool. You know, what I have a problem with is uh, I have a problem with the corporate structure of leeching off of our culture and not giving anything back. And then I have a problem with if you are a supporter of ours and you walk away from that to go support the other side when you're fully educated on both, mm-hmm. well, then you've made a real decision. You know, there's no grade line for me. Like, like I said, we have Zoomies employees that come, uh, I mean, the other guys, employees <laughs> that come by and I'm, I'm happy to have them around, you know, like they're, they're cool people. We, some of our best employees have come from there. Uh, they worked there at one point or no, or uh, one point or another, but they chose like, Hey, I see something different in your values. Mm-hmm. I see that you actually have values that you give a shit to stand up for something. And I want to work for that. Cool. And if you would rather just have more money and you don't give a shit about principles or values, but, but you know, you're educated about it and then you choose it. Well, then you've chosen which side to be on. But go on with your questions. <laughs> the, uh, the Instagram questions. So in the old borderline videos, there were skits that kind of acted as introductions to parts. Brandon Smith asks if we should bring the skits back. 
You know, I so the skits, I, I guess you're either a skitter or you're not. <laughs> so, but um, the skit was an answer to the way we saw videos being done. You know, I was really blessed to be in MacDog movies, but MacDog movies were face shot, name title, and then video part. And then you would call it a lifestyle shot of you like looking over while you're sitting on your board. You know, cool. That's not my lifestyle of doing stuff, you know? So my personality is talking shit, making fun of myself. Uh, I'm, I'm super into being the butt of the joke if it makes people laugh. Probably mm -hmm. a product of being an only child and really needing attention was, look, I can get attention by making people laugh. And who doesn't like some attention, right? So uh, I think that that was in, you know, came out of me as a young kid. And then when it came time for this, I, I just wanted to make these funny things that I felt drew people in more than just show some tricks and a face. And, and so Burtner and I's answer to that was, let's do these videos like this. That's more of your real personality coming out. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I, Did you have a favorite skit? Uh, I th probably my favorite is the, um, the TRL one, yeah. uh, the Backstreet Boys, where, um, where I was, the, the girl starts out on the beach, like uh, Carson Daly's talking, like, oh my gosh, I want to request Jason Works in. And, uh, so, and I'm singing in the pool. That's probably one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I just, dude, I just wanted to have fun with it. I wanted people to laugh, not take it too serious. We can take the riding seriously. Let's, let's let the rest of it be fun. Let's let off some steam and not be so serious all the time. So yes, the skits, question skits should come back. Okay. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wanted to, uh, in videos, but uh, you know, like I think another thing is you have to have people making the videos, driving that, that thing, because if that group's not into it, then it's not going to happen. You know, if that guy's not driving it to make it happen, then young males are not interested in looking stupid in front of other people. You know, it takes, so, it takes so, a special, special kind of guy to want to look stupid in front of other people. <laughs> so looking at pop culture right now, what would be a skit? Just freestyle one for me. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. I don't know. That is a really tough question. I'm just going to blank out on it. I know that if I did do another video, I would want to do Nice Gordon 2 and pick up with some the similar storyline of where nice Gordon was now mm -hmm. and what he was doing. But, um, man, I guess the low hanging fruit has to be some sort of Trump thing. Uh, <laughs> but, well, I don't know. Um, man, that's a tough question. I, I would have to jump a little bit deeper into whatever's happening at that time. Because it, it kind of needs to be somewhat relevant to the time period mm -hmm. of what's happening. So, yeah, I would, I, sorry, I don't have a good answer for that one. Where my mind went when you brought up the, the TRL skit was just more music. You know, you have, you have all of this, uh. There's no musicians as old as I am. Well, like <laughs> drug rap is, is what yeah. I call it now. You know, you have mumble rap, but it's all influenced by you know taking too much xanax or whatever right so you have them mumbling right uh, that's kind of where my head went man yeah 
And you could have some face tats. <laughs> I don't know. I think my wheelhouse would probably be a little bit more. I have to be a little more age appropriate. So probably some sort of Liam Neeson. I'm going to get you. I'm a, <laughs> my special set of skills uh, would probably have to, have to be where it went. But uh, oh, and then maybe we could reprise the role of male stripper that I had previously. <laughs> I remember you know, that one. Yeah, that might be a good one. All uh, like um, Chris Farley in the Chippendales. You know, the current dad bod stripper. We'll have to think about this. Yeah. So Josh Poe asks, "What is your favorite borderline video?" A lot of borderline questions. Yeah. Um, hmm. I would have to say that would be um, eh, probably in for life or Steezin for no reason. Steezin for no reason has a special place. No, I'm sorry, not Steezin. Um, Survival of the Tightest. That's what I meant. Um, Survival of the Tightest has a special place in my heart because just like everything we did, that was the point in time where we said enough of people's limitations, we're going to do it our way. And what I mean by that is uh, the first year we made the video on a linear editing system at Chugiak High School. So it was basically like what the guy could show us how to lay tape on tape is basically how it came out. Very simple and done. And then the next two years were done um, with uh, Carl Augustet at Carl's Action Video. But that was us saying like it was limited by whatever Carl thought could happen in in a, an amount of time that was reasonable. So we would say, hey, we like this style. We want to do this. And he'd be like, eh, I don't know. Let me see what I can do. And and limitations of software. After that, we Jesse and I were like, dude, there's too much different stuff going on in videos that we want to mix it up. So I went and bought a an Apple laptop and a portable hard drive and Final Cut Pro. And Bertner and I went down to Southern California and got in a hotel room and sat there for, I think I went a week early, stayed at my, my grandma. I grew up in Southern California. I stayed at her house and did a lot of clip logging. And then when we met up, we spent at least a solid week straight, day in and day out editing to try to get the video that we wanted. And that was the Backstreet Boys TRL thing. That was um, big help to Andy, um, super genius, a Andy, super genius Simidus, uh, who was our tech support. Like, so whenever we couldn't figure something out, and mind you, there was no YouTube video <laughs> to be like, how do you do this on Final Cut? It was just, it was a, a weird program. You had to learn how to do it. Computer froze all the time, all of that. So he would be our tech support. And and it was like, sky's the limit as much as we could think of. That's when editing was real, like cut and scratching like and and all kinds of different weird stuff you hadn't really seen before. So that was that's that probably is my favorite for the fact that we really broke out and became our own band at that point. That's awesome. All those videos are online too, right? Yeah, I think Nice Gordon got taken down, but um, all of them, sh all of them except for that, are on uh, the Blue and Gold Vimeo page. So if you go to Blue and Gold um, on Vimeo, you should be able to find them all. So that's um, Polar Bears, Dog Sleds, and Igloos through Steezen. Yeah, those are always worth watching. 
Yep, and they are free ninety nine. So <laughs> I think I think they're downloadable too. I think I made them downloadable, so you can you can just download them to your computer in case they get uh, clipped for music violations. Because <laughs> yeah, um, that's highly likely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we paid for the music rights. We bought the CD. Yeah. (laughs) At Sam Goody. (laughs) At the beginning of the podcast, I asked you what you think when you look back on how things turned out. So now looking forward, you have a son. What would you like to see happen in order for his journey to be as eventful and fulfilling as yours has been? Um, I want him to have an environment where he can be confident confident to pursue what he wants to without worrying about um, about what anybody else thinks about it or feeling like there's any limitation on it. So whatever I can do to create that, that's that's what I want to do. The more I get into this dad thing, the less the, the more I want to make sure I don't push myself on him because it's super easy for, hey, pro snowboarder Jason pushing his kid uh, to be a pro snowboarder and all that. And I just don't want to do that. I mean, snowboarding is what he gets, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I, I'm not going to, I don't want to be the, what if he wants the rollerblade? Well, there's a few things he's not allowed to do. So, <laughs> um, you know, like if he wants to ski, he can ski when he can buy his own equipment. <laughs> but until that point, I buy snowboards so you can get a snowboard and you can snowboard, you know, you want to ski cool. Save your allowance up. I don't know how to ski. I can't teach you. And I, it's a myth to say like, well, we should get kids started on skis. I, that fucking pisses me off. To I wonder where that. that came from. Well, it came from the fact there was no good snowboarding equipment for little kids. But now there is. Now it's made to fit tiny little kids and it works well. It's good equipment. And so that's where it comes from. So now it's a myth. Mm-hmm. Previously, if you wanted your kid on the hill before age five or six, it was probably a smart idea to get him to ski. But now we don't have to do that. And um, that's just not my life. Is My life is standing sideways on stuff, you know? So that's the direction we're going to have. So as much as that sounds like I just contradicted the first thing I said, um, I, I, I'm going to let him do what he wants to do. But uh, I, I just – what I mean is I don't want to be – this hovering parent that pushes him. To, if he tries snowboarding, he's like, eh, I don't really want to do that. I'd rather play soccer. Then I'm going to be like, okay, well, my heart just broke. But uh, <laughs> but I'm going to go to that game and I'm going to support you, dude. If that's what you want to do, I want you to feel free from your dad and from the world of any kind of constraint on what you can do. You know, and, and that... That's the really the best I can offer. I, I want to just keep pushing the shop to be a positive thing in the community. I, I don't care if it's considered core or not core or whatever it is. I'm, I know I'm doing good stuff to make a lot of kids happy um, trying out this stuff and getting into this world. And all I can fucking ask is that kids get that same opportunity to fall in love with snowboarding or skateboarding. And I hope my kid has that chance. And if he chooses to fall in love with something else, then, then so be it. You know, that's, that's part of me contributing is not being an asshole and, and saying like, tough, (laughs) you know, I'm not taking you to baseball. You're doing this, you know? So we're nearing the end here. Do you have anything else to add or? Um, 
I don't know. I, people are probably tired of hearing my voice by now. Um, one day we'll have to talk about the, uh, the getting shot at at the raspberry ramp because your dad was there that night. How about we just talk about it right now and we can end <laughs> right then. Okay. So um, this is a pretty funny situation, but when Stan Marshall and myself and uh, a few others, we worked at Borderline and we got wind of this ramp that popped up over on Raspberry at somebody's house. And this ramp was pretty rad little ramp and like Ted Kim and those guys would come and rip it up. And um, there were, there were lots of local dudes that ripped it up. And so we would come after work and, and skate it. And I definitely didn't rip it up, but I've skated it. And uh, so it was in these people's driveway and, and fall, you know, it can get kind of wet. So they erected this, um, tarp roof over it you know like full four sides roofed in or boxed in so we were like well i don't know these guys you don't know these guys whatever they're letting us skate here cool let's skate so we skate night after night night after night cool one night scott was scott was like i want to come and so i don't know if that's what he said but basically long story short stan myself scott liska we were all there we're skating out it's in the driveway taking up one or most of the driveway and you can't see the street. The opening is on the house side, the uphill side of the driveway uh, of the tarps. And um, so we're skating and we hear a bunch of ruckus out front. And then we hear tires squealing off. Like hear some arguing tires squealing. Guy comes around, peeks his head in the tent flap and says, hey, you guys might want to go home now. Things might not be good here in a little bit. Like, what? <laughs> okay. That's never good. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. So we we all dip out. We all go to our cars. Oh, wait, I forgot my hoodie. So I'm lone guy, walk back, go back inside the ramp house, grab my hoodie, and I'm starting to come out and I hear car pull up, squealing happens, uh, yelling. I hear gunshots starting to go off. So picture this, like I'm sitting on the ground on the backside of the ramp and I'm facing back toward like uphill towards the house and the house is off to my right hand side. I see a guy walk by, walk slash run by and he's yelling, they maced me, they maced me. <laughs> Another guy pops out of the front door, hands him a gun. He's like, here's a nine. It's loaded, safety's off, ready to go. You just handed a gun to a guy who's been maced. He can't see anything. <laughs> you handed a gun to him. So uh, shots are popping off. I'm sitting there going like, what the fuck is happening right now? You know, like, what if I get shot through the ramp? There's nowhere for me to, to run to get out of there. How old are you at this time? Uh, like 22-ish or so, probably, something like that. There's nowhere for me to run because the street is where it's happening. Right in front of the driveway is where it's happening. And so I'm like, what is going on here? I'm worried that what if somebody else goes to try to get into the house to kill these guys or shoot these guys and they look over to their left and see me sitting there and they think I'm part of it and they shoot me, you know? Eventually, a bunch of shots pop off. I don't get shot. (laughs) Uh, Nobody comes up past that tires squeal off guy walks by again and i'm like hey is it clear and he's like yeah get out of here 
So then I peek around the corner, everybody's gone. I run, get in the car and dip out of there. And you're driving. I'm dri- well, I'm driving by myself. Okay. We all drove separately. So those guys were gone before any shots happened or anything like that, you know? And so turns out <laughs> this was a drug house. Nobody knew these guys, but they built a ramp in the front yard, in the front driveway. They were just renting the house. They built this ramp there to give a reason why you would see people coming in and out all day, every day. Like drug-wise, pretty smart plan, you know? You don't get suspicious of a bunch of people coming in and out to skateboard. Yeah. So when people are buying drugs day in and day out from the house, people aren't getting suspicious. But drug beef happened. Shots shots popped off and luckily none of us got hit. But then I got back the next day and I was like, dude, I was <laughs> I'm sitting there hiding behind the ramp in the middle of a shootout, you know? And um it was a pretty wild time. That was pretty like we said, ruckus happened back then. It just it just went like that. Did you guys ever go back? Fuck no. They, <laughs> it was in the paper the next day that those people were evicted and jail and all this stuff because they were running drugs out of the house and all of that stuff. So it was immediately torn down, uh, taken out of there. And those guys didn't even know any skaters. They just, they just built this thing <laughs> and said like, hey, kid, you want some free candy? And basically had us all coming over there skating to to block, to run interference for what they were doing. How were the transitions or anything? Was it, was it like hodgepodge put together? No, it or was, was it... well done. Had a, little, <laughs> had a little tombstone on it. That's why everybody was there every Super day. Super sick. Yeah, it was sick. Gosh, that's like... I know a few of those other people remember that ramp. I know Ted has to remember that ramp. And um, for the life of me, the guy, I can't remember his name right now. Um for some reason, him and I butted heads, but he's a super sick skater. He was like also a Mongo footer dude. And Danny is his name. Atkins. That's oh, it. Okay. And uh, he would crush that ramp. Um, there there were a number of those dudes that I saw over there that would just kill that thing. And so not only was I skating it, but I'd get, you know, I was getting my lessons every day too. Uh, and it was cool. So I know that some of those guys have to remember that. They just, I don't think they were there for that night, the fateful night. I'm just still mesmerized by the long con of, yeah. the, of the ramp. <laughs> Put some work into it. <laughs> well thought. Well played. Well played. Well played, Mr. Dealer, man. Well, and it's funny. Your dad was over there that night, too. Your dad was <laughs> over. Your dad wasn't afraid to get his dicks in the mix and go out and, and hit some stuff with us. Your dad has one of the – dad, we're talking about Scott Liska. Um, had one of the best near-death ollies ever in humanity (laughs) because it didn't matter if it was a four inch curb or whether it was a 16 inch box somehow every time he ollied he would hang up his back truck and still make it up so just picture purpose like hanging up like he wasn't doing it on purpose but you were like Oh, wide-eyed, jaw on the floor, going like, "How did he not eat shit and he every, just time. every time? Every time, every <laughs> time. Like it didn't matter. Obviously, you can ollie over four inches, but not if it's a curb. You're gonna hang up on that curb and somehow make it over. So yeah, it was it was a lot of great times, and um, I guess the one thing I can add is borderline and and the 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 whole shop environment gave me, uh, it created a culture around our city. It created a community that not everybody was a part of Borderline, but but peripherally, we were all part of this community. 
And that community was something for me to latch onto and feel like I belong to. And that gave me a safe uh, feeling and a feeling of confidence to be able to move forward and and push myself. And I felt like that was an integral part of me getting to be a pro snowboarder. And so I always saw that as a huge value. Um, as much as I wanted to say at that age that I was a, I didn't give a fuck about anything or anyone and I could stand on my own and I was my own little island. We all still wanted something to be a part of. Um, some kids find a gang, you know, or cause they're looking for something there, you know? And I found that I found skateboarding and snowboarding community and that gave me a place to flourish and so I've always felt like that was hugely important. And I try to take all the good things that I learned from that time, the amazing uh, things that, that cultivated community, and learn from the bad things that I saw, the, the mismanagement and things like that, and put those into the modern culture, the modern environment, and hopefully provide that same thing for people that want it now. You know, you, whether you, whether you want to make, whether you want to be a pro or whether you just want to make a great pow turn, or you just want to learn how to drop in, or you want to kickflip a double set, you know, whatever you want to do on a board, I want to help make that happen. I just want to make you love this stuff as much as I do. And, and if I can help facilitate that, that's what blue and gold is there for. And that's what my new, my current mission in life is to keep these doors open and keep this store going so that we can continue to provide stuff that just makes it um, something that people can fall in love with. Because I fell in love with it. And at 44 years old, I'm still out trying to street skate. I'm still out snowboarding a lot. Um, I'm never going to stop until I keel over and die or the body won't do it. And that's because I fell in love with something so much. And I just want to provide that possibility for others. And you're not going to do that by being too cool and being um, uh, off-putting to people and excluding them from things, you know. So somebody gave me the chance when I sucked to be a part of something. So I think that the corest thing you can do is give somebody else that chance too. So that's what we try to do. Um, that's not a commercial for the shop. That's just a principle in life. Leave something better than you found it. And that's what we're trying to do is leave our scene better than we found it. Right on. Well, Jason, this has been awesome. As always, it's great talking to you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you listening. And uh, yeah. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 